welcome back listeners to Radio Free South Bronx. I have Dan Labatz here to talk about the Nicaraguan Revolution and um, talk about what's going on today and in the past and how they're tied. Um, thank you for coming on, Dan. Nice to be here. Thanks for asking me, Desiree. Great. So um, tell me a little bit about your background. You said you were born in Chicago. How and why did you end up becoming so focused on Nicaragua? Well, I um, when I was a kid, um, I, uh, my mother moved uh, with me and my sister to uh, Southern California. I grew up south of San Diego on the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, I became interested in uh, both Mexico and in Latin American culture uh, in that way. And I um, later focused my, my research on Mexico. I've written several books about Mexico. Uh, and I became interested in uh, Nicaragua during the period of the Nicaraguan Revolution that took place in 1979. Um, my girlfriend, now my wife, Sherry and I, uh, went to Nicaragua like many young people did who were enthusiastic about the movement there that had overthrown um, the dictatorship of the Somoza family, really a dynasty of Somozas. And, yeah, uh, and tell, tell the listeners a little bit about, we'll come back to the tie between Southern California and the mm-hmm. Southern states and Latin America, because I think that's something people don't talk enough about. But tell me a little bit about where is Nicaragua? Just a basis, basic overview for people who don't know much about the country. Sure. Um, Nicaragua is in Central America. It uh, is a, a small nation. Um, its territory is about the same as the state of Wisconsin or New York State in terms of its total area. Uh, it has a population today of about 6 million people. Um, it was, uh, you know, it was part of the indigenous world of Latin America before the Europeans came. And in fact, the Aztecs of Mexico first uh, went down and uh, were involved in spreading to Nicaragua. I'm not sure if we should call that a conquest, but in any case, they had become very involved in Nicaragua. And then when the Spaniards conquered the Aztecs, they took Mexica people, the indigenous people of Mexico, with them to conquer Nicaragua. So Nicaragua, in many ways, has a culture similar uh, to Mexico, except that the the Caribbean coast of Nicaragua uh, was controlled by the British. So you have on the Caribbean coast of Nicaragua, uh, in English-speaking people, many of them are of African descent. They're people who uh, either escaped slavery or had been in slavery in eastern Nicaragua. Yeah. And the rest of the country, we would call mestizo people, people of mixed race. Uh, or indigenous upbringing, you know, ancestry, rather. Well, there's not, the indigenous, there are not too many indigenous groups in uh, the Spanish-speaking part of Nicaragua. The indigenous groups that survive are in the East Coast. In the mountains? Or? And mountain, well, in the mountain, Nicaragua has a lot of mountains. In the mountains and the rivers, and particularly in, we could say, northeast Nicaragua. And so it doesn't have that prevalent uh, indigenous culture like Mexico, where people speak Quechua in some parts, and, you know... Well, in Mexico, they would, they would speak... Uh, Nahuatl, Quechua is in, is in uh, Ecuador, in Peru and Ecuador. And Peru so. and Ecuador. So, uh, uh, I didn't have enough time to research today. <laughs> yeah, so, so the uh, in in uh, there are not uh, indigenous languages spoken in the Spanish-speaking part of Nicaragua in general. There are in the eastern uh, in the eastern or Caribbean part of Nicaragua. And I don't know if you would know this in particular, but is there a tension racially between yes, what color your skin is, so colorism? 
um, and also like your, your heritage? Well, yes, it's very, um, it's, I would say first, there was a, the people in the majority of the population of Nicaragua, who are in the Western and Spanish-speaking part of Nicaragua, had little understanding of the English-speaking and Black and indigenous populations in Caribbean Nicaragua. And it was a big historic problem at the time of the Nicaraguan Revolution. Yeah, there. so did that civil war kind of arise in part out of these racist, ra these tensions, racial tensions? Um, I, I would say, I wouldn't use the word racial tensions exactly for this, uh, because I think that there had been so little contact that there, it was simply ignorance of those populations altogether. Not there was one race against the other. Yeah, not so much. I think it was the presumption of the Spanish-speaking pe people of Nicaragua and of the leadership at that time of what was the Sandinista uh, movement that led the revolution in Nicaragua. It was just their presumption that they knew what was best and they knew what was right. And these people in eastern Nicaragua were just kind of in their way. And they didn't have really a sensitivity to what we would call today racial or ethnic or national questions. Yeah. They didn't really have a notion that you should be, uh, that, that perhaps these people have to decide their own fate either within the context of your nation or perhaps they, they want to be a different nation. But they didn't really deal with them as peoples. So tell me about the Civil War. Was there two clear sides the same way we had in the American Revolution? Uh, Was there intermingling in terms of? Yeah, that's a good question. So. I, I want to go back a little further, though, that is into the 1930s, in order to, to explain that um, in the 19th, if, if you went to the period from about 1900 to the 1930s, the United States was constantly involved in Nicaragua. Uh, American business interests were there in various uh, industries, uh, agriculture mainly, and lumber and gold mining. And, uh, and also the U.S. government was concerned about Nicaragua. And because it wanted to keep it under control, U.S. Marines invaded and occupied Nicaragua because uh, the U.S. government was afraid that the country would become destabilized and bad for U.S. investments. So what happened then was that um, uh, in the 1930s, as the United, uh, the United States began to withdraw from Nicaragua, but it, it wanted to turn the country over to a trustworthy military force. So a guy whose name was Somoza uh, was chosen to head the National Guard. And in 1935, he became president. In 1936, he went further and just carried out a coup and became the dictator. And he and his two sons ran the country uh, from 1936 to 1979. And they ran it for the big business interests, for themselves and for the rich people of Nicaragua. They had an alliance with the rich people in the both conservative and liberal parties. So this brought about, I'm assuming, uh, massive waves of refugees? Or, uh, actually... Or political or...? No, because the population of Nicaragua uh, was 3 million people at that time in 1970, say before 79, about 3 million people. The country uh, has a lot of uh, land and space. Immigration, you know, it's very difficult for really poor people to migrate. Usually, usually migration takes place by people who are a cut above the very poorest. And so for the very poor in Nicaragua, they couldn't migrate. Most people were living in agriculture, so they could support themselves on pretty, you know, pretty miserably on small farms. But it meant that, I, I don't think there was great uh -huh. out-migration at that time, emigration. But there was a... Upheaval. There, well, there wasn't upheaval to, uh, at, until we get to 19, until we get to uh, the late 1960s and start into the 70s. But of course, 
um, most Nicaraguans, there was great poverty. Mm -hmm. There was great, uh, there was a lack of education. There was a lot of, uh, just a lot of things we associate uh, with poverty, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, um, a lack of health care was a very, uh, hunger, a lack of health care, a lack of education. Those were key issues in Nicaragua. And, uh, and meanwhile, the business class was getting rich. So there begins to be resistance, first by uh, students. This often happens, you know, because students have a, even, even in Nicaragua, the students were really poor and there weren't very many of them. They had a somewhat privileged position to look at the rest of the society and to take action. So starting in the early 60s, they start to create underground guerrilla groups, revolutionary groups, that want to overthrow the government of Somoza. All right, great. And uh, that ties into um, what I was going to note about students starting uprisings. So it seems that with the unrest that's going on today, um, the students are leading it as well. Yeah, I don't know if it's exactly leading, but they, maybe they detonated it. Okay. Because one of the things that's interesting about students, you know, is that they're, uh, they're a group that is not really like a social class. They're in the university for uh, a year or to, to, to eight, maybe, you know, at most. Uh, most of them are there for a few years. They may graduate or may not. But it, then, they're, then they're back in the society. So students usually don't have the social weight to actually lead things. But what they, they did, it seems to me they were a big part of detonating this. That is, people were sick of the uh, Ortega dictatorship. He had be, he's been president now uh, for four times. Yeah, so uh, just a little bit on President, or as of, you know, April 26th at 3 o'clock Eastern, President Ortega. He was a revolutionary in the 1980s, but then he was ousted in the 90s, reclaimed power in 2007. His wife is his vice president, and he eliminated term limits, yeah. among other um, what some organizations are calling war crimes. Oh, yeah, he, um, he, he really... Uh, he really concentrated power in his own hands, the hands of his wife, the hands of his children. You know, it's, it's very much like Trump. That, that Daniel Ortega runs Nicaragua the way Trump is trying to run the United States. We're not letting him. Yeah, we're not letting Trump do that, and the people of Nicaragua are getting sick of uh, Ortega doing it. That is where... Um, it's hard to have a revolution with only four billion people. That's revolutionizing an entire country with less than half the population of New York City. Well, I don't know that it's... Some people might say it's easier in a small country. Communication's easier, there's fewer people to reach, and so on. But uh, I don't know that people in Nicaragua right now are seeking a revolution. That is, there's been an upheaval. There's been a revolt in Nicaragua. People uh, took to the streets to protest. And then the government murdered, we're not quite sure how many, at least 24. Yeah, I, uh, I, at last check, I saw the, the, the real drive for this round of anti-government protests was everything in the last 30 years, but also um, a 5% decrease in benefits for people who have paid into Social Security. They were going to increase Social Security for people paying and decrease the amount being put out. Absolutely. That was the thing that, that started this whole thing. And many everyone these, has a grandparent. Everyone has a friend who's retired. Right. And many of these young people said, my grandma, you know, the, I, I've been online reading some of the uh, hashtag Nicaragua and hashtag SOS Nicaragua. And uh, if you go there and then people writing in Spanish and English and all kinds of comments with all kinds of points of view. But some people saying, you know, I have a grandmother and they were going to take away her her pension and other people talking about, you know, we're sitting quietly in our house now, you know, hearing the rebellion taking place outside and we're so proud of our people for rising up against this. 
Um, and you know, one of the people in the videos, um, so the president Ortega, he has relented, he has removed the decrease in benefits, but television coverage has been blocked, dozens have been dead, including at least one journalist, um, and basically it's been over 10 years of oppression and fraud. Now, how, this is the biggest uprising since Civil War ended in 1990. I think um, that usually people just, usually people refer to that as the revolution of 1979. Okay. And following the revolution in 1979, um, then there began a civil war between the Sandinistas, who led the government, and people called the, the Contras, for yes. Contra Revolucionario, Contra Revolucionarios. And the Contras were a group of people financed by the by United the US States. Government. So they, I've heard of them, absolutely. Yeah, they were former Samosistas, most of them. The CIA organized them, supplied them, and they carried out a, the, the, it was a genuine civil war though, because the Sandinistas made a couple of important mistakes in their revolution that alienated large parts of the population. Mm. They did some marvelous things. You know, they carried out a, an educational campaign that was fantastic and health campaigns, but um, they, they made two big mistakes. One is the Sandinistas did not distribute the land to the peasants. The peasants had supported the uprisings against Somoza, thinking that they were gonna get land. Most people in Nicaragua were farmers, they're not really peasants, it's the wrong word to use for, they're, they're small farmers, and uh, and they thought they would get land. And the, the Sandinistas... To the, to the proletariat? Well, the word proletariat usually refers to the working class, so I would not... Call farmers proletariat. And they're not, uh, small farmers are not part of the proletariat in anybody's vision, usually. I'm learning, I'm learning all the lingo. <laughs> so, so these small farmers... They didn't want money, they wanted land. They, they wanted, wanted the land distributed to them, sometimes it was land they'd been fighting against, you know, bigger agribusiness that was taking away their land. And the Sandinistas, because their ideology, what came from the Soviet Union and came from Cuba, they were highly influenced by those countries. They wanted to nationalize all the land. And the peasants said, no, in my land, I want to own it. I want to pass it on to my children or whatever. Yeah. So that led to uh, a number of people from the rural areas, farming people who deserted and went to, you know, deserted the, the Sandinista cause and went over to the Contras. Yeah. The other group we talked about a little bit before were the indigenous populations. The Sandinistas came into the indigenous areas and they were very suspect of these people. They had no contact with them. They didn't understand their language or their culture. They knew nothing about their political thoughts. And, the, and those areas were highly religious and, um, and not Catholic and very you know, Protestant religious people yeah. and conservative and linked historically to American ports. You know, their business was in, with the United States. So they weren't necessarily people who would have become contra-revolutionaries. Contra they, they didn't have a horse in the race or... Well, maybe you could say that. Yes, I think that wouldn't be bad to say. They didn't really... They were glad to see Samosa gone, but they weren't sure about these Sandinistas. They didn't really know... They were know. living mostly outside, too, of, of the government, the formal... Yes, that's true. That area had been less controlled the, by the government. But in any case, when they came to the indigenous people, they were highly suspect, and they came and they started ordering the indigenous people to, get a, to leave their lands and get away from the border. Because, and that you can understand this from a political military point of view. They didn't want this to become an area of basis for the Contras. But from the point of view of the indigenous people, they were gonna lose their, their land. land. And, and they, all they have is the land that's, you know, yeah, an indigenous, indigenous culture. Yeah, absolutely, Indig you're absolutely right. Indigenous people are people who live 
in a kind of symbiotic relationship to a particular natural society. So you know? I went to Grand uh, Canyon a few mm -hmm. months ago, and I met uh, several members of the Lalapai tribe, mm -hmm. and it was incredible to see. I'd never been on a real reservation before, mm -hmm. um, and it was incredible to see, though, that the connection that these people had with the land and with their ancestors and with their stories. It was really beautiful and powerful. Like you said, to see Wallapai people who had been pushed out of their homeland by U.S. government forces, to see them back in their homeland, in, caring in, in for the Grand Canyon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's very true for the indigenous people of all of the Americas. You know that the European invasion pushed them in many cases off their land, carried out genocide against many of them, simply yeah. were wiped out, disappeared. But in any case, the Sandinistas couldn't convince the indigenous people. They didn't give it a chance. That is, they actually won over some of the indigenous people to join their leadership committee at first, but they then they were so heavy-handed and so crude and impatient that they, and, and of course, they were under the pressures of a foreign, really a, a foreign-sponsored attack on their government. Yeah. So I, I cut them a, you know, I give them a little bit of, a, you know, it, it was a very difficult decision to make, but they certainly screwed up. And so in the end, they ended up with lots of rural people, lots of farmers, and lots of indigenous people who moved into the opposition, became part of the counter-revolutionaries. And with the ineptitude, so the American government, like you said, has always had a hand in the pot for Nicaragua since 1930s. Um, since before that, I would say since the early, say, let's say 1900, roughly. Uh, and like you said, now today that has translated, or sorry, then in the Ninth Revolution of 1979, that directly translated to armament and fiscal um, stewardship by the American government to the Contra. Yes, but, the, but it wasn't stewardship because the United States couldn't actually, wasn't actually in the country. They were, that is, the, the US, nobody, after Vietnam, it was pretty hard to get people to want to go to war again. Yeah. So this was kind of a proxy war. Uh, between the United States and, in a way, Cuba and the Soviet Union, which were backing the yeah, Sandinistas. Yeah, it was like another Vietnam in which they're trying to say, if we squish communism here, right? Yes, exactly, the domino theory. Yeah. That if we don't stop them in Nicaragua, then they're going to take over all of Central America, all of Latin America, and so on. This was Reagan's kind of logic. Yeah. The domino theory we often refer to it as. Um, but it was... Thanks, uh, high school world history class. Mr. Barber. Uh, <laughs> I still remember this stuff. <laughs> uh, and, well, good for Mr. Barber and you. Uh, and it's, it's very important. You know, the United States did try... You know, Jimmy Carter, who has this reputation as a humanitarian, this, re this revolution began during his presidency. And his view was, at first, they want to keep... Samosa in power. Can we keep Samosa in power? Then when it's pretty clear Samosa has to go, then it was, well, can we at least keep the National Guard, which was the basis of Samosa's power, can we keep the existing military force and the existing government in power? And then they couldn't do that. I mean, uh, Jimmy Carter's reputation as a humanitarian is not deserved. He was not prepared to say the people of Nicaragua should run their country and we're getting out and so on, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I think that probably, going back to our little comparison with then and now, uh, probably right now a lot of similar uh, discussions are taking place in the U.S. government about how to handle the problem. So I was, <laughs> I was going to go into the um, general body of Trump's ineptitude um, <laughs> and the ineptitude of the government under Trump. Mm -hmm. um, Lord knows who's going to be Secretary of State in two months. Lord knows. We know right now. We know. It was confirmed today. Pompeo was confirmed today? Yeah. Okay. So with new Secretary of State Pompeo for at least the foreseeable future, as well as um, John Kelly still being in the White House, 
and several of the other heavy-hitting FBI agents and people in, in this administration. What do you think will be the response by the U.S. government to the mounting tensions today? Well, I think um, the, the first thing the U.S. government is interested in... Let's say what they will do, and then from like a humanist, like good point of view, like sure. if we had actual control, what they should do. Yeah, or what, we, what we would do. I'm say <laughs> what, what we, we would, would do. do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What would we, the American people, do if we, if we gave it some thought and had good information and so on? Um, I think... Uh, the first thing I want to say, though, is to characterize, you know, after the revolution, let me say, let me get there a little bit. Yeah, no, okay. take your time. After the 1979 revolution, uh, the country was in, engaged in this uh, civil war that went on uh, until uh, 1990, really. It was still going on until uh, the, almost till the 1990 election. Throughout that period, many people were killed, maimed, injured. The Contras had a despicable yeah. way of attacking health clinics and schools and going after uh, you know, the edges of the society, but also going after institutions that were helping people. And, and so consequently, um, the, the, the people of Nicaragua were exhausted by this war. And then the Sandinistas, who had been relying on a volunteer army, decided if they were going to fight the war, they had to institute conscription. So once there's a draft, yeah. and soldiers are being drafted to go to war, uh, then the people of Nicaragua deeply resent that. That drives a, yeah. a few more into the arms of the Contras. So, so you have a society which by 1990 is prepared to vote for anybody but the Sandinistas. They want out of the war. The U.S. government supports a woman named Violeta Chomorro. She's an important figure because her husband had been assassinated by Somoza. He was a newspaper publisher and editor and was a kind of a more democratic figure in the country. He was killed, so she had good credentials. I was not associated with Samosa. She was also an older woman who had a grandmotherly sort of appearance. Yeah. And she had an accident where she hurt herself during her campaign. I don't know that she broke a leg, uh, but in any case, so she was being wheeled around. And many people looked at her. And felt I, safe. Well, they felt, well, first they, they felt they, are, they were, so many people had been maimed and injured and so on. To see her injured, to see her, this grandmotherly figure. Yeah, that's take care the other of. thing. Um, in Latin culture, the grandmother runs the family <laughs> in many cases, in many uh, families. And so to see this grandmother figure is very recognizable for them and very easily for them to trust. Yeah, I think that's, so I think there was a sense of trust. The U.S. government was was backing her campaign, giving her lots of money, indicating they supported her. And uh, and when the election took place, much to the surprise of the Sandinistas, they lost. They would not have held the election, I don't believe, if they thought they could lose. But they they held the election, they lost, and they had to step down. Her when she uh, when uh, Violeta Chamorro was elected, her coalition was it was everybody but the Sandinistas. The Communist Party was in it. The most right-wing business parties were in it, and everybody in the middle. And so the minute she was elected president, the coalition fell apart because, uh, because those people couldn't get along. And she did, and the majority in the parliament, in the Congress, was held by the Sandinistas. And the army was controlled by Daniel Ortega's brother, Humberto Ortega. So the, the Ortegas controlled the parliament and the army. So she had to make a deal. And her son-in-law, Antonio Lacayo, made a deal, and the two Ortegas and Lacayo became the triumvirs who ruled Nicaragua for at least six years, uh, five, six years 
in her presidency. So, uh, so that really set the stage where Daniel Ortega becomes part of a conservative government, really, ruling the country jointly with them. Uh, and then he does, he continues to have that role with two other presidents. And then, yeah, and then now we get to Ortega today. Yeah, and then and this really takes us, that is, a whole series of, the, the former Sandinistas got a lot of property from the government in something called the Piñata. At the end of their regime, just before Chamorro came into office, uh, they went and, and, and they had, been, had homes that they were the using greenhouse. and that they were, they just took over the property. They it took over think offices. Of, um, the Nazis after World War too. Um, they took. They kept a lot of paintings, a lot of artifacts. They. I wouldn't make this comparison because I think that it's too gross. Myself. I'm sorry. But I understand sorry. your point. <laughs> I understand your point, but. Um, well, I mean, even in the Middle East uh, today, you know, in Egypt and in uh, Iraq, Iran, there's been a lot of uh, plundering of you know antiquities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that I think in this case though, it's just that these people had had governmental power. Uh, they wanted to remain wealthy and powerful people. And so they had a house they'd been allowed to use. They just took the house. They had a government office they'd been working in. They stripped the offices. And they they took the, the information. Yep. They created NGOs. Suddenly, all the former Sandinistas no longer in government became the heads of NGOs, wow. the heads of businesses. And no organization was able to stop them from doing this? Well, you know, when, they, when, when the Sandinistas became head of the government, they tried to model themselves on Cuba. They created the women's organization. Uh, they created a labor union organization. They created a student organization. They created the farmers organization. So they tried to control everything about the population through their mass organizations. This meant it was very hard for people to have a, a place to get a toehold in the society and build something else to have a different point of view. Yeah. Um, and on the other, you know, on the other hand, those people who weren't part of that were being driven. Not all of them, not all of the rest of the people became part of the Contras, but many of them felt driven to go to the Contras. Um, well, and yeah, I mean, there's always that drive in any revolution. <clears throat> I mean, I'm sure that if things are going poorly, you know, sometimes you might be drawn to what looks like the most change, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, people were looking That's for... That's Trump got elected. Yeah, people were looking for change in Nicaragua. Uh, and, uh, and so, but, but, but Ortega had controlled the parliament throughout this period and also made these deals with these other political figures. So when he is elected uh, and in the 2000s becomes president again and has three terms as president, Changing the electoral rules, yeah. as you said. Um, this is this is a really a continuity in power. And was it a, are these false elections then that are happening every four years or two years? No, I don't think they were false elections. I would put it this way: the first couple of elections, there actually were oppositions. Um, the oppositions could not get together. You had a sort of an old opposition of the old, older people, older political points of view. You had a more modernizing kind of capitalist opposition. And you had two splits from the Sandinistas, people who said, these are not what we fought for. We fought for a more democratic, a more egalitarian society. And they split and they left. But none of those parties was able to Challenge build. Ortega's right. They could not. Populism. Was he very popular in terms of. Well, he was popular when he was first, he was elected president first in 1985. He was a hero. He, had, he was one of the leaders of the Nicaraguan Revolution. And then when he comes back in the early 2000s after these very conservative governments, people are looking to him, looking for change, to change the society. But, by, but what began to happen is the old Sandinista party, which had been underground revolutionaries, was gradually transformed into an electoral machine. Yeah. So in the last election, I don't think it's so much 
that the election was fraudulent in the Mexican sense, but is that there's a lot of young kids there, very poor, their whole new post-revolutionary generation who has grown up, and, and poor people say, you know, support the Sandinistas, you support the Sandinistas, you might get a job you're really lucky. But in any case, you might get a hat, you might get a t-shirt, you might get a pair of, yeah. uh, you know, when people are really poor, um, these kinds of handouts have an impact. Also, the sense that you don't want to be known as being against the government. No, especially not with someone who is kind of ticking off those fascism boxes, eliminating term limits, putting family uh, into nepotistic positions. Like, he's just checking them off one by one, so... Yeah, he's creating, he created an authoritarian government. I wouldn't call it fascist, but he created an authoritarian government. And, uh, and, and you know, one of the, for example... Uh, and also he made it, many people didn't really follow this or understand this, because if you saw a picture of Daniel Ortega in the last 10 years, he'd be standing next to Fidel Castro, Raul, not in the last 10 years, but uh, Raul a little later, Castro. Raul Castro, Hugo Chavez, uh, Philippines, uh, Evo Morales, no, not him. But in, in, you know, in the big Latin American left-moving, left leaders, Evo Morales, Hugo Chavez, Raul Castro, uh, there would be Daniel Ortega, and people said, oh, he's part of the left, he's a socialist, yeah. he's one of them. Uh, and, and, and for people who are on the left, they said, well, we, don't, we think those societies have problems, but they're probably better. He's probably doing good stuff. But even if he wasn't doing good stuff, this was a cover for his government. And, uh, and his international relations were also, he's willing to make deals with uh, you know, other foreign dictatorial governments. It was a, it, I think the, the left internationally uh, provided deals, cover to, to Ortega, to the Nicaraguan government. And those deals were usually stripping natural, uh, natural resources like gold, gas. From and, Nicaragua. Yeah. In Nicaragua, yes, there's not, um, I would say the, there, there were businesses that were there. Uh, natural resources, gold and lumber are two of the big ones. There's also the big agricultural business there, like um, cattle is one of the big ones. Uh, seafood is another one. So yes, those industries were being uh, run by big businessmen sometimes. One of the ironies is that when the Nicaraguan Revolution took place, uh, many Nicaraguans, first the really rich people, a number of them left, and they went to Miami or they went to other Central American countries. And and, and really, they expanded their business operations because Nicaragua is a small country. So they come back to Nicaragua later, much more sophisticated and more wealthy, and reestablish themselves. And most likely speaking English, too. And probably also have learned English, yes. So that they can do even more business dealings once they get back. Yeah, that makes it, it so, is true. So, Trump's ineptitude, my favorite topic. What will the Trump administration do in the coming days, weeks, months, in response to the Nicaraguan upheaval? And what should they do from an egalitarian, humanitarian perspective? Well, first, on his ineptitude, it's interesting. I agree with you. He's, he, you know, if you look at what just happened with his personal doctor being appointed the head of, uh, you know, veterans, of, uh, and then if, if he turns out to be such a loser, they couldn't possibly do this. Um, but I agree there's a lot of ineptitude. But there's another... But in foreign policy, U.S. foreign policy in the political military realm is pretty consistent, not so much in the economic realm. That is, the United States continues to have its seven or 800 military bases around the world. There's limited options, basically, in the military sense. Right. I think there's limited options, and there's also an entrenched military establishment that uh, is in the White House, some of them. There is an entrenched, there was an entrenched foreign policy establishment. It's been pretty much destroyed by the, in the State Department. But, but uh, 
so in the first place, I, I don't think his incompetence will be the dominant factor here. And he's appointed. He's not, not going to be hands on on this. He doesn't even know what Nicaragua is. <laughs> very, very possibly. So he has he has this uh, Bolton, you know, who he's brought into his cabinet, and uh, and Bolton is a right winger, very involved in Nicaragua, very involved. Uh, in Latin America, a guy who will be um, looking to find a way to end this to the benefit of the United States. Usually, he's, you could say he's a more strong-arm type approach. Pompeo, similarly, um, they will want to go in and see what they can do there um, to try to bring this. So what would the United States government want? What the would, ideal outcome. The ideal outcome from the point of view of the U.S. establishment will be, can they create a new government that uh, will be a government of big business, just like Ortega's is, but will not have the ties to Cuba or Venezuela or to um, uh, Bolivia, that will be a right-wing government that will be aligned with the United States, where the U.S. business interests will be protected and new business interests will be encouraged, that'll be brought into, sometimes people say, the neoliberal, that is, into the free market world. Um, that's their ideal outcome. They would yeah. like to see Nicaragua uh, get rid of this remnant of the, this corrupt remnant of the old left and have just a regular business government, just like they have here. Okay, and then what do you think they should do? What do I think they, I don't think they should do anything. I'm not an advisor to evil people in US government. I think it's a question of what we so should US, do. So US government should stay out completely. Yeah, the U.S. government can do no good in, in Nicaragua or in any other place in the world. You know, U.S. government is a government of big business. It's a government of the military. Oh, I'm it's, 100% behind you. It's, uh, it's created the criminal justice, um, you know, industrial, prison industrial complex that we have. It has oppressed people across the country. It has interfered in almost every election from forever to now. Right. So I, I'm, no, I'm no fan. I don't think they can do any good. But then the question is, what can we do? Well, in the first place, I think that those on those people on the left, where I kind of come from, we are people on the left ought to come to understand what was the nature of the governments like those in the Soviet Union and Cuba and so on. That these were governments that were run for the communist bureaucracies of those countries. Nicaragua was sort of a capitalist variant of that, uh, and and they should break with defense of that. For the American people in general, the American people in general have to do things like fight Trump's immigration policies. There is going to you know there are there are immigrants in from Nicaragua in the United States today who are concerned about their status. They have a status called um, you know temporary uh, protective yeah. status. And if they get deported back to Nicaragua, they're literally being handed back into the hands of revolution, um, of upheaval. I mean, the State Department, at least from the State Department's perspective, they've asked travelers to not visit recreationally right, yeah. and uh, right. Very good close point. the embassies and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, they pulled all their people out. I think, the, I think the U.S. government was caught by surprise on this, as they usually are when anything important happens. But uh, I think that um, yeah, this, this question of TPS, if these people were sent back, um, they are sent back into an upheaval, as you point out, absolutely right. They're also uh, sent back into a country of extreme poverty, where they, some of them won't speak the language, some of them have been here and have lost their Spanish, uh, you know, the children did never had Spanish. Some of them are Spanish speaking, but they'll return and they, may, they don't have the connections, uh, who knows the situation of their family, and it's a country of profound poverty. So. To tell them to go back now, uh, it seems totally unjust. And well, as all deportations are, um, the deportation process in the United States is extremely unjust. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, but that's another, that's an entire episode. Yeah, we do that another time. Uh, 
so, um, so I think that what we should do is the people of the United States ought to um, support the Nicaraguan people's struggle for democracy there. Mm -hmm. We ought to try to figure out ways we could show solidarity. Um, no problem. I don't know how we can show such solidarity. Uh, well, definitely. But, you know, it can be done through humanitarian groups. I'm always leery of the question of um, what humanitarian group one might work through. Well, for that, I always recommend Charity Navigator. It's just one perspective, but it's really good. Um, they basically scour people's um, organizations, like finances and the work they're doing, and uh, give them a rating. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not perfect, but it's a good start. Um, and also, lawyers have been doing a lot of um have done a lot of events outside of courthouses. Oh yeah, I've been, in, I've been at some of those. I've been yeah. at some of the, the courthouse protests here. Because they're over literally deporting people's clients. Well, yeah, I mean, trial. Well, here's the thing. Let's say that let's say that you that, that let's say someone is an undocumented immigrant, and that undocumented immigrant is called as a witness to a, to a court case, and so they come as a witness, being good people, trying to do their duty to be a witness in a in a in a court and they get busted, uh, be, you know, for being undocumented on There's their way so in the There's so many stories court. like that too, like the little girl who was getting surgery and they basically deported her in her hospital bed right after the surgery happened. Um, and it's just, I mean, it doesn't just hurt that people, it really does tear apart our communities. Immigrants are the fabric, make up the fabric of our community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you may think that you're not gonna feel the, the, that, the loss of them, but you absolutely will. Yeah, I think um, that's true. I think to, to go back to your broader question about what we can do here, uh, most of us have little or no connection in Nicaragua. Many people don't speak Spanish. Following these events in any detail is difficult. To, the press doesn't always cover them in a very good way. Depends on what you read. You can read lots of different things. I think that... Uh, and I think we gave everyone great coverage. <laughs> I'm glad you do. Uh, you're, you're the exception. I'm glad you invited me. Uh, but I think that one of the things we can do is we can try to... Um, we can try to build in our own country a movement to change the, the politics of the country. And I, that is, Trump, Trump has got to go, the Republicans have got to go, but if we want to be able to, to defend and help people like those in Nicaragua, the Democratic go. Party, Who's got to go? the Democratic Party is a party that has had all of the same kind of policies. I mean, we have the involvement of the Clinton, uh, of the Obama-Clinton administration in um, the Obama administration, Clinton, as Secretary of State in the in the coup in Honduras. Yeah, there's uh, lots of problems, and I think the DSA is one answer to that. But in, uh, I really do. Are want you, to I didn't know that you were familiar with DSA. Yeah, that's how I got your message. Uh -huh. And one of the things I'm most passionate about is um, additional parties, mm -hmm. um, creating at least two more parties for our country that have equal weight in power as the others. Um, I know on equal weight. I want to drive those other parties out of business. I want to create a mass democratic working class party in the United States that also stands against racism and for feminism and uh, and for LGBT decency. rights. Well, it's common decency, but yeah, so uh, but it's not. Maybe that's that maybe we could start the party, the common decency party that would be like you know the uh, the rents too damn high party. You know, I it's love the kind that of thing. guy. That guy was awesome. <laughs> we need to have him run for something. But I think that we I agree with you very much. One of the problems in the United States is we have we have had a the idea until very recently that the Democrats and the Republicans shared a common foreign policy that political differences end where the water begins and your policy for every you know foreign policy is shared by the two big parties. Now how can you break down everyone's varied political views into just two categories? That's so that's such faulty logic. Mm -hmm. it's People true. are more varied in their thoughts that way. Absolutely.
And I, I do think that we need to, uh, I do think we need, you know, right now in the United States, working class people's interests aren't recognized, um, nor is the country capable of doing uh, anything useful uh, for people in foreign countries. The whole idea of people, uh, the whole idea of foreign aid. Foreign aid is used as a soft tool of the U.S. State Department, of the U.S. government. It is not intended uh, to, to make, actually aid people. In the end, it's not intended to change the, you know, the question is what creates poverty? That's, that's the big, what creates poverty? What's the nature of the system? It's a worldwide system. How do we challenge that? And it's not done through handouts, you know. Absolutely. Hi, well, is there anything else you want to add? Well, I don't know. Do you have, you said you might have some readers who speak Spanish. And so I thought it might be nice if it's okay with you to say a few words at the end here. Though, uh, not readers, I mean listeners. I'm a writer, so I'm thinking of readers. Uh, you might have some uh, listeners who are Spanish speaking, and uh, if I might say a word to them. Yeah, and let's let's definitely do your closeout first. So, how do people get in touch with you? How do people keep up with what's going on in Nicaragua? Well, I'm an editor of a journal called New Politics that can be found at newpol.org. That's N E W P O L. Dot org. And if you go to that journal, there is a way you can contact us, and I open that mail. That's one of my jobs as a co-editor of the journal. And so I would love um, to have people contact me at newpol.org, N-E-W-P-O-L.org. Um, they can also uh, uh, look at my Facebook page, down Dan Labotz, D-A-N-L-A-B-O-T-Z. And we didn't get to drop it, but your book as well. Is this your only book so far? No, I have, I'm the author of uh, 11 books. Uh, I, I didn't think the answer was going to be yes. So uh, <laughs> this one in particular is called What Went Wrong with the Nicaraguan Revolution, a Marxist Analysis, and that will go more in depth into the revolution of 79 that we covered briefly today. Right, it goes, and I try to give a historic background on on what created the, the nation of Nicaragua, what gave it its historic problems, the, the nature of the revolution of 1979, and then the, then the development and the creation of the regime that is today being challenged so, so heroically and by the Nicaraguan people. Yeah, and um, you know, we do uplift all the people of Nicaragua and what they're going through, you know, the news that is making it out by young people is really sad. Um, the death toll and the torture and the terror and all that stuff. So, you know, hashtag Nicaragua, hashtag SOS Nicaragua on Twitter to keep up to date with what's going on there. Um, and yeah, it's great to have such an expert cover. Um, well, it's really nice of you to invite me. Uh, yeah. I think it's important we have these discussions and... Uh, put it out there, absolutely. So then finally, wanted to give a little message to our Spanish listeners. Pues todo lo que quisiera decir que yo creo que nosotros como norteamericanos, como estadounidenses, tenemos que apoyar el pueblo nicaragüense en este momento cuando están en lucha contra una dictadura, contra eh, todas las violaciones de derechos humanos que han sufrido ya por años. Y uh, yo quiero llamar a mis compañeros aquí en los Estados Unidos, el pueblo norteamericano, que nosotros demostramos nuestra oposición uh, a la política 
de Ortega, pero para nosotros más importante, nos manifestamos en contra de la política de Trump, del Partido Republicano, y de, y de la política extranjera del Partido Demócrata, que necesitamos, como hemos discutido aquí en inglés, un otro partido, un partido eh, del pueblo trabajador, un partido eh, democrático, egalitario, para luchar en la defensa de, de, de todos los, los oprimidos y explotados del mundo. Sí, Nicaragua libre, todos los latinos del mundo libre, y para adelante vamos con la lucha. Gracias, Dan. Gracias, encantado. Gracias.